This is Toby Haydokes Who's Round. As opposed to, say, you know, Harold Pinter's or Gerald Kaufman's. This interview was recorded at the Blue Box 2 convention with thanks to Stephen Elsden, who represents the charity Comp Aid. So if you have extra pennies, please give to them. Now this gentleman uh, is one of the most fearsome creatures in the galaxy, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Oh, I'm not fearsome at all. Uh, my name's Nicholas Pegg, and since 2005 I've been one of the regular Dalek operators in Doctor Who. Uh, but you'd, you'd had an apprenticeship uh, on Westminster Bridge. That's right, that's right. Yeah, the first time I was, uh, I was a Dalek was back in uh, 1993 when they were shooting the documentary 30 Years in the TARDIS. I was actually a Cyberman before I was a Dalek. That was the first thing I did. I had not long uh, left drama school at the time. I graduated from drama school in... Uh, 92, actually, the year before. And um, like so many things in life, it was actually all Gary Russell's fault, really, because he uh, knew that I'd recently got out of drama school and was looking for work, as young actors do. And he knew Kevin Davis, who directed 30 Years in the TARDIS, and he knew that Kevin was looking for someone to be a big bad Cyberman coming down the steps of St Paul's Cathedral on this particular uh, Sunday morning in October, I think it was. Um, And uh, so anyway... Kevin phoned me up out of the blue and said, hello, I'm Kevin. Gary Russell says that you'd be a good Cyberman. And uh, so I, uh, I, <laughs> I said, yes, I'd be a very good Cyberman. No, I, I was fantastic. I was, I was very grateful for the, uh, for the job. So along I went, and I was the cyber leader coming down the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral at 5.30 on a Sunday morning. Um, and that was great fun. And then a week or two later, Kevin phoned me up and said, right, we're doing Daleks on Westminster Bridge now. Uh, so do you want to come and do that? And I said, yes, please. Uh, so off I went to do that. Oh, and at that point, Kevin said, uh, we've got lots of Daleks. Can you recommend anyone else? And that was when I, I, I recommended my very good friend, uh, Barnaby Edwards, who I was at drama school with. And uh, he came along as well. So that's how both Barnaby and I got started as, as Daleks. And then, you know, fast forward to 2000 and when the new series was was starting up and uh, yeah Barney went in to do the episode Dalek and then when it came to the next one the the bad wolf story um, they needed they needed more than one Dalek and and I was back in the back in the harness and ever since then I've been uh, I've been doing it yes yes so what had led them to, to Barney and subsequently to you had they there was the paperwork saying oh there was this documentary and these lads did it or uh, well I, I, I guess somewhere in a drawer at the BBC there was a piece of paper saying these guys have been Daleks before but actually I think it was probably more to do with the fact that um, again you know at the time that the new series was starting up both Barney and I knew quite a lot of the people who were involved in it I mean Nick Briggs was already on board to do the Dalek voices and I think it was actually Nick who um, who suggested Barney um, for the uh, for the episode and then and once Barney was in Barney sort of uh, reminded them about me so uh, so it was kind of a bit of both I think uh, yeah but um what an extraordinary thing to, to... I mean, it was extraordinary back in 93 that, you know, one of the... I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I, I, I loved Doctor Who when I was little. And um, the idea that one of the first TV... Certainly one of the first TV jobs I got, I'd, I'd done some theatre and things, and I'd done a couple of little bits of TV. I had a tiny, tiny little part on EastEnders, Blink and You Miss Me. Uh, but... One of the first TV jobs that I did was was a, a Doctor Who thing, um, which was just extraordinary for a for a young lad who, you know, if I could, I've often thought if I could get in the TARDIS and go back to tell my own ten year old self what I would be doing, I, I'd 
I'd probably look at myself and say, who are you, Baldy? But no, I, I, <laughs> but um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience. And, and gosh, look what, it's, look what it's led to. I'm, I mean, I'm incredibly lucky, aren't I? Gosh. Well, I'm curious. Um, well, there's two things I'm curious. One, I, you must be the only person that is tall enough to uh, say a Cyberman and not so tall that you can play a Dalek, because surely never the twain should be. Yeah, yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, Those, of course, are with a sort of Earthshock-type Cybermen, and they are quite big and things. So I was, yeah, I mean, I'm six foot three, so I was, I was right for that. I think, actually, when Kevin Davis phoned me up about the Westminster Bridge thing, I think possibly the first thing he actually said was, was can you, do you think you can fit in a Dalek? Uh, and, indeed, the first thing that Phil Collinson ever said to me, as far as I can remember, is, uh, is how can you fit inside a Dalek? Uh, so, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's, I'm quite tall, but when you're tall, it's mostly in your legs, you know, and obviously you sit down inside a Dalek, and once you're sitting down, you're roughly the same height as everyone else. I'm not going to sit here and claim that it's the most comfortable thing in the world, but that's the same for everyone, you know. I mean, Barney comes out with just as many bruises as I do, and, and, and he's three foot six. No, he isn't. No, <laughs> no he isn't. No. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a tight squeeze, but it's a tight squeeze for all of us, really, you know, certainly in the, in the, in the bronze type ones yeah yeah but it's okay it's uh, you know you, you try and get me out of there yeah well indeed well and getting you in there was for you know big big for not doctor who when you were doing it hadn't been back you were making it yeah uh, we now know it was a huge success and it's now a big major operation I assume it can't. I assume there was a lot of learning curves going on and a lot of uncertainty as to whether it was going to be successful. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, obviously, as as a, a very small cogwheel in the in the overall machine, I I, I could only <clears throat> you know I could only give you my own little take on that. Uh, but certainly, yeah, when we were shooting that first series, the Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways story, as you say, it hadn't been on yet. Nobody really knew whether it was going to click with the public and, and take off. I think there was a certain amount of confidence that, you know, everyone knew that they were making a show that was pretty good. It was going to be very, very good. But whether the public were really going to go for it and snap it up, I mean, you can't design the kind of success that it became. You just can't. There's, there's no way. I mean, it was very, very well done. It was a great show. But you can't make people love something um, you have to wait and you know hand it over to them and, and see what's what I can remember the first time that I really um, really realised that what an amazing thing was about to happen was during the shooting of the Bad Wolf story at some point uh, while we were halfway through filming it uh, Phil Collinson arranged a screening at the, the hotel that everyone stayed at in Cardiff uh, he hired a function room in, in the hotel and we all went in one evening after we'd been in the studio all day and you know Chris was there and, uh, and um, Joe Ahern and Phil Collinson and everyone in the cast of the and we all trooped in and had some drinks and we sat down and watched the not quite completed edits of two of the new episodes it was The Unquiet Dead and Dalek uh, and you know that was for most of us the first time we got to see the title sequence and hear the music and see what Chris and Billy were like on screen you know, even though we'd already been working with them, of course, this was the first time we'd actually seen the thing, and it was so thrilling. I mean, from the moment the music started and the you know the uh, stuff that, uh, on the Unquiet Dead, I, I just thought, oh my goodness, this is this is actually going to be this is special. This is really going to work. This is fantastic. I mean, not that I'd really had any doubts, but it, seeing it for that first time, I mean, I can remember still remember the thrill of that evening. It was really just so exciting to be a part of it as well I mean what, a, what an honour but to to sort of just sit there and realise 
something amazing is going to happen and I'm lucky enough to be one of the first people to get a little glimpse of what's going to happen. It, yeah, I mean, gosh, amazing, amazing. So yeah, there was, by the time we were making the second series, the Army of Ghosts and Doomsday story, obviously the show, <coughs> excuse me, the show was a success. Um, that didn't mean that everyone was swaggering around going, oh, we're fantastic. Of course it didn't. But it, it, there was a, certainly a, a different sense that they were now following up something that had been a become a phenomenon and also a phenomenon (laughs) (laughs) and a a Uh, and of course but you've got loads of mates who are Doctor Who fans presumably because I mean I I remember the effect of that cliffhanger of uh, Army of Ghosts yes Uh, so did you have to run around telling people not telling people that you were in oh yeah of course we did I mean we have to you know there's a very strict rules about confidentiality you know when you receive your scripts which we do the script comes through the post there's a there's a little letter on top reminding you that this is you know top secret BBC copyright don't tell anyone blah 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 quite rightly too of course because it's it's not for actors to you know occasionally someone inadvertently lets something slip in an interview or whatever but but you are um, yeah you are expected to keep uh, keep the confidence and quite right too because those surprises are worth their weight in gold you know and you don't what, who would want to spoil them so yes certainly on that occasion because that was such a brilliant thing wasn't it army of ghosts it set up the big reveal of the cybermen which didn't happen until i don't know halfway through the episode or something and you're led to believe at the end of that episode that what's going to come out of that globe is a is a some sort of top dog Cyberman, and suddenly the whole thing reverses, and it's the Daleks. And I can remember when I was reading that script, thinking, "Oh yeah, that's a cliffhanger." And boy, what a cliffhanger it is! Uh, and we had a whale of a time shooting that one. And um, yeah, oh, I mean, absolutely, we kept quiet about it. I mean, I did actually go to a convention. Um, <clears throat> At some point, quite soon after we shot that story, and of course, people always ask you, you know, are the Daleks coming back? Are they coming back in the next season, and so on? And uh, well, you understand why, uh, you know, people in the past have, have resorted to catchphrases like "stay tuned" or or, uh, or uh, things like that because you have to just. Uh, well, you know, uh, not be dishonest, but you have to sort of say, well, you'll just have to wait and see because sometimes we, yeah, we're we're we're. Uh, We've got to we've got to keep a lid on it, yeah. Uh, but then with Daleks in Manhattan, almost the opposite happened: is that the big cliffhanger reveal was on the front cover of the Radio Times, right? Right. And that seems to be a shadow hanging over that particular story. Yeah, I mean, you know, these things are so so massively nothing to do with me that it's it seems you know it's irrelevant for me to comment on them really. But uh, because that's someone else's decision. But yeah, I thought personally, I thought it was a pity that that Radio Times cover not only showed you what the creature looked like but actually kind of spoiled the whole cliffhanger of the episode you could even tell which character it was because of the suit that he was wearing you know if you were paying enough attention so i think that was a that was a bit of a pity because it sort of skewed the way everyone watched that episode before it had even been on because i thought that was a great cliffhanger it was such a weird cliffhanger weird story that one we had huge fun shooting that one um i, I know that i've spoken to nick and, and briggs and, and barney about this and you know we've we always have fun on it but that one was certainly among the, the the most enjoyable ones. Just as an experience shooting it, there was a real there was a real feeling of feeling of um, fun and games on that one. And yeah. it has a, it has a favourite moment for me of, of what I call a sort of Whitaker Dalekness that was your instigation, which is um, 
when the Daleks have their furtive chat. Oh, yeah. And the Dalek has a quick shafty behind it. In the sewer, yeah. Well, yes, when, when we're rehearsing, before we get into the Daleks, we rehearse just standing around like all, you know, like all the other actors do. And uh, we talk to the director, and, you know, just like any other members of the cast, we do occasionally have a bit of uh, input in it if we have an idea. And, yeah, that was an occasion when I... It was my suggestion to James uh, Strong, who directed that one. Uh, I said, well, look, you know, they're having this little secret... Um, Conflab. Would it be kind of fun if, if my Dalek, you know, just before I close in and, and say my line, um, if I, if my Dalek sort of looks back over his shoulder, you know? <laughs> um, and as I was saying it, I thought, is this a bit silly? He's going to tell me that's silly. He's going to say, no, no, silly. But no, he didn't. He said, oh, yes, brilliant. Do that. That's great. So we put it in. And uh, yeah, I think it struck a bit of a chord with, with, uh, with children. They particularly liked it. Because the Daleks are kind of... They are a bit like children, aren't they, the Daleks, in some ways? They're, I don't mean that children are evil and want to take over the universe. I, I, I don't mean that at all. I just mean Never that... Met um, my kids. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, they're, well, not, maybe not children. They're like infants. They're like babies. You know, if, uh, if, a, if a small child, tiny little child, doesn't get what it wants, it screams and bawls and chucks its rattle out of the pram. And that's kind of what Daleks do, except that they're equipped with exterminators. Uh, so they, they have a tantrum and they, and they kill you. Uh, and that's what's so frightening about Daleks. You can't reason with them. They're, they're mad killing machines. So when you get a little moment like that, where these two Daleks are actually sort of behaving in an almost childish manner, like sort of gossiping in the playground... I think that did strike a chord with, with kids. So I like to think, you know, I, I quite like that little moment. I don't know, maybe, maybe some other people thought it was too silly. Uh, sorry if you thought it was too silly, folks, but uh, anyway, there we are. Yeah, we, we, we quite enjoyed that. I yeah. love it. I think it's great. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the, the, the crone Daleks um, gave way to um, a new breed of Daleks in Victory of the Daleks. In fact, you've got two breeds because you've got the, the World War II Daleks yeah. first and then, and then the, big, the big new... Um, almost movie-like yeah, Daleks. So yeah. what, are, what are the different practicalities between them? Uh, practically, the main difference is that the new Daleks, uh, the, the, the big ones, are they're just so big and so heavy that they're quite difficult to manipulate with as much uh, detail and, and nuance as, uh, as, as the other ones um, because it really is like pushing a whacking great tank around with you. Um, and also, because they're so much taller, the whole issue of visibility and also where you put your arms inside is completely different in the bronze type ones you're sitting on this thing and and the gun and the plunger are more or less at your sort of elbow height so you can just sit there with your <laughs> with your hands like this I, I, as, as I'm can saying you see this? Can, can you see this on, on audio yeah uh, but when in, the new ones are so much taller that you actually have to sort of hoik your arms up and have them uh, sort of have your elbows up beside your ears and, and do it sort of backwards um, which is a little bit harder and also of course because they're so much taller you still look out of the same part which is the sort of neck rings but when you're sitting down on the seat you can't see through there so you have to actually sort of stand up and in a Z shape with your body and shuffle along like that which is a little bit more uh, challenging um, so you know I, I did hear this extraordinary rumour someone told me a, a while ago at, at a convention someone said I, I've heard that the reason the Daleks were redesigned was uh, was to make them easier for you guys to operate um, <laughs> That's, that's not true. I mean, for one thing, as, as if a major, major redesign decision would be based upon making life slightly easier for, for 
half a dozen actors, you know, who are at the bottom of the cast list. Uh, no, of course not. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was an artistic decision, and um, uh, and in any case, as I said, they're, they're really not actually more comfortable. They're a bit more spacious inside. You know, when you're not doing anything, when uh, when the cameras aren't rolling and and you're taking a little break while they change the lighting or something, they're a little bit more spacious to sit around in, and uh, you know, you can lean back a little bit. Whereas the other ones are very tight indeed. But um, but yeah, operating them is so heavy. When we came up, the, the first big entrance of the new Daleks in Victory of the Daleks, um, which we, we all called it the stars in their eyes entrance, because <laughs> yeah. they came in through this smoke with all the light behind them and everything. Uh, that was shot on location in a cigar factory, the, the interior of the spaceship. It was, a, it was a steel box, basically, that room. It was what they call a humidor, is the thing that they used to store tobacco at the, at the right temperature. But that meant it was, uh, as well as being devilishly hot and stinking of stale tobacco, so it wasn't the loveliest uh, location ever, it was actually raised up off the floor of the building. It was about, um, I don't know, a foot and a half off the floor of, of the rest of the, the warehouse that it was in. And that meant they had to build a ramp behind the door to, for the Daleks to go up. And these new Daleks were so heavy that getting them up that ramp was a real, um, you know, it was real donkey work. And then once we got to the top of the ramp, we had to suddenly become smooth and glide in beautifully, which we, we did our best to do. I think it looked all right in the end, didn't it? Um, but yeah, and also the other thing was, with all the smoke and the lights in our faces, we couldn't see a thing as we were coming through that door. We absolutely were, you know, blinded by smoke and lights. Uh, and the first rehearsal we had, we were just bumping into everything, left, right and centre, and making a complete hash of it, unfortunately, because we just couldn't see what we were doing. And then we eventually resolved this by um, the props guy coming with a piece of um, LX tape, that's what, uh, what you call the, the, the sort of uh, different coloured tape that you mark around the, uh, the set for, uh, for various you know, marking purposes, and they, they marked a, a sort of line on the floor that we could look down, instead of looking out of the thing at all, we just looked down at the floor and as long as this, this straight line, it was it's a bit like you know on an aeroplane when they say uh, when they say the, the follow the lights to the exit. It was a bit like that, and we were just looking down, following this line, and as long as we were doing that, we knew that we were uh, we were reasonably on course. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, they're um, they're great big heavy buggers, those Daleks. But uh, yeah, I know they, they have their they have their fans. I've met lots of people uh, you know at signings and things who've said they really like those Daleks. They're, they're their favourite ones. Other people prefer the bronze ones. You know, it's different different strokes for different folks, isn't it? And. and um we'll bring us right up to date with Asylum of the yeah it's fine is it, is it too noisy or is it okay yeah, yeah, yeah. oh fine fine sorry yeah. uh, we'll bring us right up to date with Asylum of the Daleks and give me an anecdote from that and then I'm going to ask you about you oh crikey are you uh, an anecdote about Asylum of the Daleks well I mean it was gosh that was huge fun that one what can I tell you about uh, the scene with the big explosion was a mixture of exhilaration and uh, terror basically <laughs> filming that scene you know the bit I mean where the doctor uh, sabotages the Dalek which rockets backwards down the corridor smashes into a load of other Daleks and everything explodes um, which is a great sort of big screen moment wasn't it um, the way that worked was that Barnaby was the Dalek in the corridor that the Doctor sabotaged but when it got to the bit where it rocketed out of the thing and crashed into the other Daleks uh, you'll be relieved and I know Barnaby was relieved uh, to know that he wasn't inside it then it was empty and they just pulled it along on a great big piece of rope but the Daleks that were travelling towards it that it collides with did have uh, me and uh, one of the other guys inside uh, so we had to we had to trundle along towards this Dalek and it was coming rocketing out at us and actually when this thing is coming whooshing at you at that speed it was quite quite daunting really um, I think we did it in two takes the first one 
I, I, I think they were both fine actually but I think the director just wanted a, you know different angles so we did it twice um, and the first time I, I really hurt my thumb uh, <laughs> it was entirely my own fault um, I had my hand resting rather ill-advisedly on the inside of the uh, the ball that the sort of ball joint of the uh, plunger arm and when the impact happened it whacked straight you know really ricocheted through my thumb and uh, so there was a little sort of ow from inside the Dalek but um, other than that it went well and then of course I got out and, and, and the other guys got out before we got to the explosion none of us were actually allowed to see the explosion it was such a big explosion that the whole thing was done by remote control nobody was in there the director went out everyone went out uh, the cameras were left running um, and um, we were all sent outside, uh, literally out, out of the building, and Danny Hargreaves, who does all the special effects, was in there. He set up the explosion, and then he retreated to a safe distance, and uh, we'd actually gone to lunch by this point, so we didn't get to see this, but apparently the explosion was so big that it blew, away, blew open the doors of the uh, studio building, uh, so that must have been quite a sight, but I thought it looked great in the yeah. final, you know, when it was all cut together. That was, a, that was a great filmic moment, wasn't it? But yeah, we had, uh, we had a lot of fun doing that, uh, doing that episode, yeah. And you are a very cultured man who has written a book about David Bowie you've written pantomimes you are a Shakespearean performer who also you know your Shakespeare so does this all come from a sort of Doctor Who-ish geekiness that you don't just when you do something like Shakespeare and David Bowie you, or it may be Bowie I don't know you'll tell me it's Bowie uh, you, you, you do it to an extreme gosh uh, well that's very kind of you to, to say all that lovely stuff uh, Toby um, <laughs> gosh uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm an actor, and, and when you're an actor, you do, you do the acting jobs that, that come along, and, and obviously being a great big Doctor Who fan as well, it's just a massive thrill to, to be a darling. But yes, I do have other, other stuff what I do in my life, and I do, you know, normally play human beings when I'm, when I'm acting, uh, and, and not Daleks, and, and other things as well. I, I once played an otter at Birmingham <laughs> Rep, um, so, you know, a Dalek isn't necessarily the most peculiar thing I've ever done. Um... Yeah, sorry, what was the question? Um, well, I, I guess it's, it does, does it all spread from a, an element of you that's Doctor Who fanish? There's like the David Bowie, for example. You are, you've written a book. Tell us about the book you've written. Well, yeah, I mean, as well as being a, a big Doctor Who fan, I've always been a huge admirer of uh, David Bowie. Uh, Sound and Vision by David Bowie was the very first single that I went out and bought with my own pocket money. Must have been about nine, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've always been a great, uh, a great fan of David Bowie. And, um, yeah, sometime in, oh, the mid-90s, I... Um, I thought, you know, why isn't there a book? There are plenty of biographies of him that have been written over the years, but there wasn't a book that actually looked at his body of work, which it seems to me is, is the most significant and rich body of work by any British rock musician of, what shall we say, the, the, the post-Beatles era. Um, and I didn't want to read about, you know, uh, salacious stories about, uh, about his, his very colourful life. I wanted to read uh, stuff about his even more colourful and fascinating work. So I, I just started jotting things down. I actually started doing it while I was doing a theatre show. I remember, you know, while sitting in my dressing room in between the bits that I was in, I was starting to scribble down ideas for it. And it gradually grew to the point when I thought, oh, I could actually maybe do this. And I sent a proposal around a few publishers and got a few polite rejections to start with um, and eventually I found a publisher who was interested and, and uh, yeah the first edition was published uh, in, in uh, 2000 I think it was and it's now on its sixth edition um, which has you know it's been it's been very uh, 
very exciting thing to do. Yeah, so it's it's called the complete David Bowie, available from all good stockists, folks. Uh, and um, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's not just a great big book of facts, although I suppose it is that. But it's you know it's also an attempt to analyse and talk with a reasonable amount of intelligence about about the uh, you know the influences behind his work and the themes and and tropes that he's been preoccupied with in his in his music over the years and also of course in all the other things that he's done his painting and his acting and his uh, film career and so on yeah and does he know about it and you uh yes yes he does he's uh, i'm delighted to say he's been very um very kind and very supportive about the book whenever a new edition comes out we send some copies over to his uh, to his management company in, in new york and uh, and he's done me the great honour of, you know, signing copies and writing very sweet things on the flyleaf and, and sending them back to me, which is very kind of him. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm delighted to say he's been, uh, he's been very kind about it, yeah. And Shakespeare's another passion, and before we'd ever met, actually, uh, we worked with a, I worked with a mutual colleague of ours, Howard Chadwick, who told me of a very amusing review you got for a Shakespearean part that you played. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you had to remind me of this just now. That's right, Howard Chadwick. He's a he's a lovely guy. He he's been in some pantos that I've uh, that I've written over the years. Uh, very good actor. Yeah, that's why I remember telling him this. Well, yes, once a few years ago, I I played the uh, the part of Bottom in uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a, a gift of a part. It's one of the great comic parts in Shakespeare. People often say, "Oh, Shakespeare and comedies aren't funny." Well. They are actually, uh, I think. Um, but but you know, obviously, some some bits are, are, are more fun than others to do. And bottom is one of the, you know, that's a gift of a part to uh, to, to, to any actor. And uh, well, I obviously tickled the ribs of this particular uh, reviewer. I'm delighted to say because I did get this review that said um, Nicholas Pegg's bottom is the funniest that I've ever seen. <laughs> well, that's, that's all right. right. Isn't it? Yeah. That's all right. It's the best you can hope for, isn't it? The worst thing, you know, the the reviews I really love are the ones that. Uh, you know, you can get slagged off, or you can get praise. But the ones that damn you with faint praise, those are the, those are the uh, the ones that that really uh, uh, <laughs> that, are, that, are, that are the best, aren't they? I remember I was I was once in a stage adaptation of uh, Wuthering Heights, and. Um, the local paper wrote, "In the role of Edgar Linton, Nicholas Pegg is more than adequate." <laughs> I thought, oh, great! Thank. Well, at least I was more than adequate. I suppose that's something, you know. God, blimey! Uh, <laughs> still, that's all right. I think I think Paul Daneman once gave the Dane, uh, and there was a review that mentioned every major member of the cast except for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Yes. Well, that's the other one, isn't it? There's always you get that one that's. Uh, 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 and Toby Haydock completes the cast. <laughs> <laughs> he showed up. Yeah. Um, well, this bar is getting noisier, and I've, I'm about to give a performance. So, yes, you are, aren't you? Uh, whilst thanking you for your time, I will ask you to nominate a charity. Well, the charity that I'd like to nominate is called Tiger Time. Uh, it's a uh, charity that's part of the David Shepherd Wildlife uh, Charities, and it's to protect tigers in the wild and hopefully do something about the parlour state that they're in. Uh, when you go to the zoo, there's quite often a tiger or two there, so we tend to think maybe subconsciously, oh, tigers, they're probably doing all right, but they're really not. There are only a little bit more than 3,000 tigers left in the wild now, and there's a very strong chance that they'll die out within the next 20 years, which is a terrible, terrible thing. Tigers. So, the charity that I'm, I'm recommending is called Tiger Time, and you can find it online. Thank you, and you're one of us, but what is your message to us, the Doctor Who fans, on the 50th anniversary? My message to the Doctor Who fans on the 50th anniversary, good heavens, my message to the Doctor Who fans on the 50th anniversary is have a wonderful time, or you will be exterminated. Nick Pegg, thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Toby. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. Bye.
Thanks to Nick. I feel bad we only touched upon his extracurricular activity, as he is a very erudite and interesting man. But our location was getting noisier, uh, and I know some of you cannot countenance background noise. Uh, oh, and there was the small matter of the performance I had to give, which was, when we finished, only a few minutes away. Next time, uh, we have a man who remembers uh, next to nothing about Doctor Who, yet still gave me one of the most fascinating Who's rounds yet, as he plays ping-pong with Douglas Camfield, reacts to something awful in Moonbase 3, not the script, you at the back, and um, ooh, gets court-martialed. I mean, actually court-martialed in real life. He's also the third person I've spoken to from this particular story. Everyone seems to want to talk about it. Uh, Ferrero Rocher, anybody? And Nick's charity's Tiger Time, you find at uh, www.tigertime.info. Uh, and if you want to make suggestions or say nice things, you're horrible if you want, uh, get in touch with podcast at bigfinish.com. If you are saying something horrible, don't spend the energy on giving a lollipop to a stranger and making their day. Um, thanks for listening, because in doing so, you've made mine. Bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Daleks Among Us. I know you know about what happened here 20 years ago. The invasion, yes. My friend the Doctor was there. After the war, neighbour turned on neighbour, ethnic group turned on ethnic group. There was terrible, bloody violence. When the Daleks invaded, they made people work for them. Yes, as slaves. Not just as slaves, as collaborators and informants, willing to do whatever they had to just to survive willing to murder and worse. You have tortured me. You have performed surgery on my brain. Six months later, and still, you have failed. You will surrender the schematics! No! <laughs> this has to stop this mindless slaughter! It is what I exist for. Father is not quite uh, normal. What do you mean? There were things the Daleks did to him in their torture camps. Things that changed him. There are voices. Can't you hear them? They are among us. There are Daleks among us. Father, there you are. Oh. This is Will Arrowsmith. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Do you never get tired of working in the dark? I do my best work in the dark. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.